Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Nick Bunker, the author of In the Shadow of Fear, America and the World in 1950. How are you doing today? I'm great, Deidre, and thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little about yourself and how you got started on this project. Well, as I think you can tell from my my accent, I'm British. Um, I'm actually speaking to you from my home in in Lincolnshire in England. And uh, this is my fourth book. Um, My previous books uh, have really been all about the um, colonial American period, about early New England um, and about the origins of the Revolutionary War. And there was a biography of Benjamin Franklin. I mean, the book that... um, of mine that's probably best known as An Empire on the Edge, uh, How Britain Came to Fight America, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for History. Um, but what happened really was uh, after I'd finished uh, a biography of the young Benjamin Franklin in 2018, um, I decided I really wanted to move on into the 20th century, and not least because, of course, the um, the the world environment in 2018 was was starting to look very troubled, um, given uh, confrontation in the United States and China, and given the um, activities of Mr. Putin in Russia, and because, of course, we had Brexit in the UK. And I, I felt I really wanted to write about a more relevant period, and the period I fastened on was the um, the early Cold War, uh, 1949-1950, where I felt we could see some parallels with what's going on in the present day now. Absolutely. You started the book by describing Monday, September 5th, 1949, Labor Day. Why is it significant to the book? Well, there's two reasons, really. Uh, first of all, it was, it was quite significant for Harry Truman himself. Uh, Harry Truman was the president, and on Labor Day, he gave a number of speeches that what we today would call a relaunch of his, of his political um, agenda. Um, he'd been elected uh, the previous year, re-elected as president uh, in November 1948. Um, but a problem was that soon after that famous victory over the Republican Tom Dewey, uh, the economy slipped into recession, and Truman had great difficulty in 1949 in in getting his legislative agenda through Congress. Uh, his popular or his his approval ratings with the public were always very volatile, but they were dipping uh, in the middle of 1949, really because of the recession and because of the trouble he was having in Congress. And Labor Day uh, 1949 would be an opportunity for him to start afresh, give some speeches uh, which would set out his agenda. And it was in the prelude to some important elections that were coming up uh, that fall, uh, mayoral elections across many American cities. And he wanted that also to be um, 
this would be an opportunity to, to help to influence the outcome of those elections, obviously in the, the favour of the Democratic Party, to which he belonged. But the other reason it's significant is because of what had happened a few days earlier in Russia, uh, or rather in, in, in Kazakhstan within the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviets had detonated their first atomic bomb, a test of their first atomic device. Uh, and that was also in the background. Now, Harry Truman didn't know that yet, because the the atmospheric um, tests by the American Air Force, which picked up traces of the bomb, hadn't yet been analysed. But that was also the kind of scenario uh, we're talking about here in the fall of 1949. Now, um, he talked about the arc of prosperity. Did Truman succeed in rolling back FDR's achievement? What was going on here? Well... What I also did in this in the in this opening section to turn concerning Labor Day in 1949 was that I wanted to sort of paint a portrait um, of America at that particular moment, and one of the things that I, I pointed to was as I say was something I call the arc of prosperity, and that was the fact that at this particular stage in history, the the industrial heartland of America. Um, the area really stretching from Pittsburgh up to Detroit and Chicago and then over towards places like Buffalo, New York, that industrial heartland, which today we call the Rust Belt, was really very prosperous. Uh, it was doing extremely well. The recession was certainly an, an issue, but the recession was coming to an end by September and you had very robust performance coming out of the steel industry and the motor industry. This was the heyday of, of General Motors and companies like that. And the arc of prosperity is the term I use to that particular part of the country, which was, if you like, the, the political cockpit of America. And, and the reason why Truman was, was giving these speeches, most important of which was, was in Pittsburgh on Labor Day, was he very much wanted to appeal to that industrial heartland, as I call it, the arc of prosperity, because that was really the area of the country that he needed to be sure of, of, of keeping behind him if he was going to succeed in his presidency and if the Democrats were going to remain in power in, in the White House and in Congress. Fair deal. Explain this to the audience. Well, when Truman um, was, was, was re-elected in, in, in 1948, um, he then went forward in January the 1949 to, to, in his State of the Union message, to set out uh, his program. Uh, and he called the program the Fair Deal. Now, remember, Roosevelt had had the New Deal. This was going to be the Fair Deal. It was going to build upon the achievements of Franklin Roosevelt. And it had various uh, planks to it, this, this platform, the Fair Deal. Uh, one of the most important was that Harry Truman wanted to create a system of universal health insurance so that every American had access to, to health care. This was way ahead of its time. Uh, that really would, wouldn't, of course, come in until until begin to come in until the mid-60s with Lyndon Johnson. But that was going to be one of the planks of the Fair Deal. He also had a new farm policy. And so on Labor Day, he went to Des Moines, Iowa to speak to farmers in the Corn Belt. The farm policy was designed to protect the incomes of farmers, also to keep down the price of food at the store. He had plans for federal aid for education. He had plans for federal aid for housing, because there was a big housing shortage in post-war America. And, of course, also black civil rights. That was going to be part of the fair deal, too. So he had this really bold agenda. Uh, the trouble was he ran into terrible trouble in Congress uh, in getting the fair deal passed because of divisions within, within his own Democratic Party. And so the fair deal never really materialized. And one of the themes of the book is to discuss the reasons why it didn't materialize and um, the way that it was all kind of overtaken by the Korean War, which broke out in, in June 1950. Who were the new generations of, of voters during this time? What were some of the changes that were taking place? 
Well, the two one very big important change was was the shifts of population that occurred. I mean, particularly towards the west, towards California. Um, the population of California had risen by fifty percent during the nineteen forties. Now, fortunately. My book, which covers 1949 and 1950, coincides with a federal census, which was held in April 1950. And it became very clear from that census of the huge growth of California. So California was starting to become the, the politically the, the heartland of America. And obviously in California, you had a whole series of new dynamics. Uh, California was essentially a, a Republican state still at this time. But because of this influx of enormous numbers of newcomers from, from, from the South and from the East and so on, uh, California also had a big floating vote of independent voters. And that was one, I think, of the crucial issues at this particular point, 1949, 1950, that there were some people who were solidly Republican and always had been. There were some people who were solidly Democratic and always had been, especially in the South and in, in some of the Northeastern cities. But there was also this very large center ground of, of politics, of people who were kind of undefined. And, and what a great challenge is for Harry Truman and also for the Republican Party, his opponents, was to try and appeal to this center ground and find kind of philosophies and programs that would bring them into their political fold. Well, I'm going to shift gears right now and talk about some of the scandals. The deep freezer in Missouri. Tell us about that. Well, this was a, a rather entertaining scandal that occurred um, uh, that, that came into the open in the summer of 1949 and was really an issue for, for some months to come. And it cast a bit of a shadow over Harry Truman. What it was was this. Um, in the uh, middle of 1949, June, um, a newspaper, the New York Herald Tribune, ran a story about what were called the five percenters. And the five percenters were lobbyists in Washington who used to claim to be able to procure contracts from the government, primarily from the Pentagon, contracts for private companies. And these characters, the five percenters, used to say, well, if I'm going to procure this contract for you from the Pentagon, and in return, I want 5% of the value of the contract. And this, this scandal burst into the open, and it rumbled on. And one of the aspects of this, of this, of this scandal, the 5% of scandal, involved the deep freezes. It came to light that uh, a company that wanted to get Pentagon contracts had sent deep freezes to not only Harry Truman himself, but to a number of members of Harry Truman's cabinet and to his, his team in the White House. The most notorious of whom was a guy called Major General Harry Vaughan, who was Harry Truman's military aide. And Harry Truman, uh, Harry Vaughan ended up being summoned to Capitol Hill to appear before a congressional committee. And the 5% scandal rumbled on really right through the summer and into the autumn. And it had a kind of its amusing aspects to it. But it was a bit of a problem for Truman because unfortunately it cast around Harry Truman this kind of air, air, this aura of a bit of sleaze and some mediocrity. And also it was important because the Congress, the member of Congress, who was most active and prominent in the Senate in trying to investigate the scandal was Senator Joseph McCarthy. J McCarthy focused on the 5% scandal of the deep freezes before in 1950 he went on to launch his crusade against alleged communists, communists in the State Department. So the 5% affair was kind of a curtain raiser. It was kind of a prelude to what later would become uh, the McCarthy uh, issues of, of the early 1950s. Now, you pointed out that the choices that Truman had made and the consequences would last for generations. Tell us about that. Well, remember that in his first term in office, Truman, of course, had been largely instrumental in the creation of the Marshall Plan of, by way of, of 
huge financial and economic need for Western Europe, but also in the in the in the creation of NATO, uh, the North American Treaty Organization, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, you know, the backbone of Western national security. He also, of course, had taken the fateful decision to. Um, dropped the atomic bomb in Japan uh, in 1945 and when it came to the to the to the outbreak of war in Korea he took the decision of course for America to intervene so in all these different ways Truman was the man who if you like started off the 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 American response to the Cold War to Soviet Russia and he if you like inaugurated the stance that America would take really up until the uh, until the 1980s when the Cold War drew to an end at the time of President Reagan so this is really a new beginning. Um, and he, in domestic policy, on the other hand, he had great difficulty in getting, his, in getting the kind of measures he wanted passed. That was where he had difficulty. He was very effective in taking a very decisive uh, stance on foreign affairs. In domestic policy, he had much more difficulty. Now, you talk about the Secretary of State. He did have a legal background, but how did this help him or hurt him with his decision making? Well, we're talking here about Dean Acheson, uh, who was the uh, became Secretary of State uh, in early 1949, appointed by Harry Truman to succeed George Marshall, General George Marshall, who had had to retire because of ill health. And Acheson remained as Secretary of State right through until the end of the Truman administration at the end of 1952. And he was a remarkable character. Um, he was a very striking physical presence. He was over six feet tall. Uh, at this time, when my book starts, he was about 56 years old. Um, he had a very distinctive moustache. People used to say that he looked like uh, Hollywood's idea of, of a British army officer. And he was indeed a, a very skilled, uh, very expert, very highly educated lawyer. And, and he'd been experienced both in, in private practice in the law and also in government. And he had a very acute legal brain. He'd been educated at the Harvard Law School. He'd done very well there. Uh, he then prospered in, in Washington in the 1930s. And his great skill, his great talent was his ability to take a, a very complicated factual situation and a very complicated set of negotiations uh, over issues such as the creation of NATO and, and deep negotiations with the Soviets. He could take a very complicated factual situation and he could distill the essential points. He could cut through the detail, get right to the heart of the matter. And then when he was facing an expert professional on the other side of the table, he could come out with a very good deal. He was, he was a very fearsome operator in that way. The problem he had, Dean Ashton found it a lot harder to do with what you might call unstructured situations. And he also had a problem, which was that his expertise mainly lay in Western Europe. Uh, the difficulty was that in the early 1950s, the issues that America was going to face were primarily in Asia. And Dean Ashton was not really an Asia expert at all. And there he was much less sure of his, of his grasp of things. And also, Acheson wasn't really very astute when it came to domestic policy. Uh, he was very good, as I say, at dealing with foreign affairs on a professional level. He wasn't so good at dealing with what you might call the rough and tumble uh, and the, the, the crossfire of American democracy. In Chapter 2, you talked about the British devaluation of the pound, and you introduced us to Crips in Bevan. Uh, what were some of the examples that told us that um, everything was globally connected? Well, uh, at this stage, obviously, Britain was America's closest ally, as it had been during World War II. And it was tremendously important from an American point of view that Britain should continue to be an economically prosperous country, and also that Britain should be integrated into the rest of Western Europe. This was very, very important indeed. I mean, NATO is going to be in a military alliance uh, to protect Western Europe uh, and the North Atlantic, but 
they also wanted to see Europe prosper economically so that it could could stand stalwart against the Soviet Union and also so that Europe could be a, a great trading partner for the United States itself. So Atchison and his colleagues were very keen to see the British prosper. Now, the problem was that in the fall of 19, 1949, the British were in a certain amount of economic difficulty. Uh, they had come out of World War II having spent an enormous amount of money on the war effort. Uh, the economy was actually doing quite well in Britain. Uh, they weren't having a recession. Unemployment was very low. Inflation was down. But the difficulty was that they had a great deal of difficulty trying to find American dollars, which they needed to buy, import the goods they needed from America. The British were very dependent on the United States and Canada for cotton, tobacco, oil, food, and all sorts of industrial products. And essentially what had happened was the British had run out of dollars. And the problem really, the underlying problem was that the pound, the pound sterling, was uh, overvalued. Uh, it was at an exchange rate that was far too high. And as long as that was true, the British couldn't sell their goods. They couldn't export to America. They couldn't really export into America or Canada at all. So they needed to devalue the pound. But that was a really difficult step for the British to take uh, for a variety of economic reasons. And so they had to come to Washington in September 1949 and negotiate with Atchison. Uh, they were trying to negotiate with Atchison uh, a set of measures, a set of policies that would make it easier for them to devalue and which would... Um, helped to ensure that Britain remained, as, as I say, as a prosperous partner of the United States. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Uh, one of the reasons it wasn't easy was there was a lot of criticism of Britain in America. There was a great deal of anti-British feeling in the United States at the time. A great many Americans felt that Britain had really taken a lot from America by way of, of aid and loans during World War II, and they felt it was time for Britain to stand on its own two feet. And so it was quite a difficult diplomatic situation, which eventually turned out quite well. The British did devalue the pound. The British economy actually started to prosper and so on. But it was a difficult period, and it required a very close working relationship between Dean Atchison on the one hand and the British um, Labour government in London on the other, particularly these two guys, Ernest Bevin and Stafford Cripps, who were the British Foreign Secretary and the British Chancellor Exchequer, in other words, Finance Minister. They came to Washington and did these negotiations with, with Atchison. And this was really the high point of Atchison's career in some ways, because Atchison handled this situation extremely well. And he had this very good personal, friendly relationship with the British. Now, let's look at the people in the 1950s. What did they say was the most urgent problem facing Americans? Well, it tended to come and go. Um, sometimes people said, if, when opinion polls were held in 1949-1950, sometimes people would say that the, the most important issue facing them was the Cold War, <coughs> confrontation with the Soviets, the atomic threat, and so on, sometimes. But more often, they talked about other things. They talked about inflation. Uh, they talked about housing shortages. They talked about much more bread and butter issues. And they talked about the standard of living. You see, one of the problems after the war was that although the American economy had gone on growing after World War II, until the recession I mentioned, there had been a lot of inflation. And so the standard of living had actually deteriorated so that Americans were actually earning less in real terms in 1949 and 1950 than they had at the peak of the war effort in 1944. And that issue about the standard of living was one that people kept referring to. Um, Inflation was a worry, just as it is today, of course. They talked about the kind of issues we talk about now. And sometimes the, the issues of national security and foreign policy actually, actually mattered a bit less to the American public. Now, you talked about Mr. George. How did his past influence him with his support for NATO? 
Well, you're talking here about a guy called Senator Walter George, who's sort of a forgotten figure now, but but he was a very powerful figure indeed in those days. Senator Walter George was a Democratic senator from Georgia. He was uh, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which meant he was very powerful when it came to budget matters. And he was he created problems for Harry Truman because although he was a fellow Democrat, Walter George really didn't want to see any tax increases. He wanted to keep the federal budget as low as possible. And so he wasn't really in favor of the fair deal measures that, that Harry Truman had proposed, most of which would involve him spending more money. So Walter George was kind of a skeptic about Truman, and he was in Congress one of those people who who raised objections to various of Truman's policies. And there was one particular issue in the fall of 1949 which, which caused trouble, and that was the issue of military aid for Western Europe. Now, NATO had been created to protect the Western Alliance um, and to stand up against the Soviet Union, um, but NATO was just a treaty. Uh, what they needed, as well as ink on paper, was they actually needed to have arms, weapons to arm the Allies, Britain, France, Italy, the Netherlands, and so on. And so Dean Atterson proposed that America should give a billion dollars worth of military aid to the other NATO allies. Now, that was a big sum of money. And there were many people in Congress, many people in the country who were really quite skeptical about whether this should be done, whether it was really necessary, whether the money would have been better spent at home, particularly in the South. You know, congressmen from the South were very concerned about, of course, the relative poverty of the South versus other parts of the United States. And so they, they weren't necessarily happy about this billion dollars of military aid. And so um, that caused a, a great row in Congress in the fall of 1949. Now, eventually, Truman and Ashton won that row, but uh, at a price of, of really having um, uh, used up, if you like, a lot of their political capital. Uh, and from that moment forth, really, you can see a problem where Harry Truman was really kind of losing control of Congress. September 23rd. What did Truman tell the American public about the atomic devices and the Soviets? He told them that the Soviet Union had exploded an atomic bomb. There had been a bomb test. And this didn't come as a total surprise. People knew that the Soviets were probably working on an atomic bomb because they'd said so. Uh, but it had generally been expected that it would probably take until about 1952 or 53 for the Soviets actually to get a bomb that they could test. Uh, they'd, they'd done in that they'd, they'd moved quite a lot more rapidly than people expected. One of the reasons being, although it wasn't widely known at the time, was that the Soviets had the benefit of their atomic spies in the United States who had managed to, to, to steal some of the secrets of the Manhattan Project that created the American atomic bomb in 1945. Chapter 3. The autumn of discontent strikes and how Truman dealt with them. What were some of the strikes and how did he deal with them? Uh, this is a import, very important aspect of the period. And it tends to be forgotten is just how strong the labor unions were. Uh, labor unions only represented about 25% of American workers, but they were really at the heyday of, of, of strength and success. And in 1949, they, they were striking not so much for pay, but because they wanted pensions, they wanted health insurance. Um, they wanted better pensions from their companies and they wanted better benefits because this was the big thing missing really for them, um, health care. Now, trouble was Harry Truman couldn't get through Congress his plan for universal health insurance. So the unions basically were saying, OK, well, if we can't get it from, the, from, the, from, from a government scheme, we want to get health care benefits from our companies. And so there were two big strikes. There was a big strike in the steel industry that lasted for about four or five weeks, big strike. Uh, and there was a big strike in the coal industry, which actually on and off, uh, because it started and then it stopped and it started again last year, about a year. And those were really big challenges to Harry Truman, uh, because, of course, 
because the Democratic Party was actually the ally of the Labians at this time, he was always concerned that he might be blamed for the kind of disruption that it was caused. And the coal strike actually was a big, a very big performance of the time, which lasted well into 1950. And unfortunately, it tended to undermine Truman's authority. And when it came to facing up to Joe McCarthy and to other challenges he faced in 1950, the coal strike, unfortunately, had kind of undermined his, his, his position. Now, in the 1950s, there were about 5 million Americans that planned on purchasing so many items. Tell us about these items that they were planning on purchasing. Well, a very interesting aspect of this is this kind of surge of consumer demand uh, for new products in, 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 when the recession ended in 1949. Recession came to an end around about September. And then in the winter and spring of 1950, you saw the surge of demand for automobiles, televisions, washing machines, refrigerators. The thing people most wanted was a television because 1950 was really the year when television became a mass market item. Uh, up until that point, there had been relatively few televisions, maybe like a million in the country. By the end of 1950, there were about five million. And not only were people buying the sets, but of course, transmitters were being created. So that when you started 1950, there were relatively few transmitters around the country. And so people could only really watch television in the big cities in New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and so on, Detroit, whatever. Uh, by the end of 1950, you had... You had transmitters all over the place, and you had a much bigger number of people who had television, and television really started to make inroads in this year, 1950. They wanted televisions, as I say, they also wanted washing machines, electric ovens, refrigerators, and of course, they wanted cars. And 1950 was also interesting because a big breakthrough in, 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 in the automobile industry, which was 1950 with, with a new Chevrolet was the first year when you could buy a, a mass market, relatively affordable automated transmission. 1950, automated transmissions actually became a product for everybody in America. Uh, and America's never really looked back since. Chapter four, you talk about how films with messages about the enemy within. Tell us more about the fear of communism. Well, in terms of cinema, this was the heyday of, of what we call film noir, you know, black and white films, often thrillers, detective stories, sometimes even with political subjects as well. And what you find in many of the themes, films of this particular era of 94, 1950, is they often deal with some kind of enemy within. The enemy within might be the mob. A lot of films that year are about gangsters and the mob, or it might be about narcotics. And sometimes those films actually dealt with the, the threat from communist infiltrators in the United States. Uh, there was a famous film released in 1915 in California. It was actually called I Married a Communist, uh, about a woman who marries this chap who turns out to be a, a, communist, um, a communist agent. And that was very common. And a lot of this, this kind of uh, film, uh, films, newspaper stories, magazine articles, they tended to feed the kind of notion that there was a sort of enemy within the United States and that the country was, if you like, being sort of eaten away from the inside uh, by dangerous forces. Now, that could also, as I say, get hooked up to the fear of communism. And at the end of 1949, there was a particularly important episode, which was the uh, a, a big criminal trial in New York. It was called the New York Conspiracy Trial. It was a trial of the leadership of the American Communist Party, the Communist Party of the United, United States of America. And they were put on trial. The trial lasted for many months, and eventually they were convicted of conspiracy to overthrow the government. That caused a huge amount of attention. It caused a huge amount of, 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 of interest, um, especially in New York itself. 
And this became a kind of curtain raiser again to the arrival of Senator Joe McCarthy in 1950 when he began his own crusade against communism. Chapter five, you talk about from Cincinnati to Taiwan. Tell us more about the Asian plan. Well, the reason that the, the chapter is called From Cincinnati to Taiwan is because there's two things going on here. I'm talking, one thing I'm talking about is is the most prominent Republican in Congress at the time, a man called Senator Robert A. Taft, who came from Cincinnati. He was Senator for Ohio. And he was really the, the, the most distinguished, the most famous, the de facto leader of the Republican Party at the time. And he started to take a very close interest in Taiwan. Um, of course, in those days, Americans didn't call it Taiwan. They called it Formosa. The significance of Taiwan was simply this. <clears throat> now, in October 1949, the Mao Zedong, the Chinese leader, proclaimed the new Chinese People's Republic. He had won the civil war in China. He had defeated the nationalist lead, Chinese nationalist leader, Chiang Kai-shek. He was in complete control of the country. Chiang Kai-shek had retreated to the island of Taiwan off the coast, which became the Chinese nationalist's remaining stronghold. And the question arose, should America try to defend Taiwan and protect Chiang Kai-shek? It was a big issue in politics at the end of 1949. And put it this way, very simply, the Truman administration did not believe it should intervene to save Taiwan because it felt that the fall of Taiwan was simply a matter of time. They didn't really want to become any more closely associated with the regime of Chiang Kai-shek. And they didn't feel that they wanted to be seen as being the protection of what some people might argue was kind of a corrupt regime. So the official view of the administration was that they should not intervene or, or send military reinforcements to, to help or give any more economic aid to Chiang Kai-shek on Taiwan. Now, within the Republican Party, of course, a very different view prevailed. And Senator Taft and his colleagues in the Republican Party became very staunch advocates that America should indeed stand totally solidly behind Chiang Kai-shek and Taiwan against any potential invasion by the People's Republic of China. And this really was the beginning. This, this period here, these, these closing months of 1949 and early months of 1950 were the beginning of the Taiwan question in American politics. And over the last 75 years, I mean, the, the question of, of American policy towards Taiwan has come and gone and sometimes it's been very prominent and, and sometimes it's been less so, but it's never gone away. And of course, it's still now, of course, a very burning issue in 2023. You talk about in chapter six, the alien forces of evil. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. What was J. Robert Oppenheimer's conclusion? Are we talking here about the hydrogen bomb? Yes. Now, the situation was this. 
when the Soviets tested their atomic device in August 1949, how was America going to respond? Now, there was a possibility which was to develop a new device, a much stronger weapon called the super bomb. The super bomb is what we now today call the hydrogen bomb. In, it, to begin with, in 1949, it was called the super bomb. And the super bomb was going to go beyond the atomic bomb because the super bomb was going to be much bigger, was going to use what they call thermonuclear fusion. And thermonuclear fusion was a concept that had been around theoretically since the 1920s. And during World War II, the scientists in America who built the atom bomb had begun to conceive of the notion that it might be used to build, as I say, a super bomb of much greater destructive power. Now, this, this had been around as a theoretical notion. But once the Soviets had detonated an atom bomb, it became much more important from the point of view of many powerful people in the United States to develop the super bomb and to build a hydrogen bomb that would keep America very firmly in the nuclear lead. And that was the great controversy. There was great controversy about this between November 1949 and January 1950, when Harry Truman decided to go ahead with the building of the, of the hydrogen bomb. Now, J. J. Robert Oppenheimer's position here was, was a very important one. Oppenheimer and his colleagues, the physicists who had built the atomic bomb during World War II, were mostly convinced that the hydrogen bomb should not be developed. There were two reasons. First of all, because Oppenheimer was worried about the sheer destructive power of the hydrogen bomb. Uh, he wanted it, no decision to be made to build it before there had been a serious attempt to try and reach a nuclear agreement for nuclear disarmament with the Soviets. And also because he was worried that it was going to be a very demanding project. It's, the, the physics wasn't totally clear. It wasn't entirely clear that it was actually feasible. And he didn't want to see the resources of the nation's scientists and the nation's atomic reactors being devoted to this project that he had doubts about and might not go ahead. So Oppenheimer tried to stop the development of the hydrogen bomb, but it, it was no good. Uh, because there were too many powerful lobbies, too many powerful people, and too many people within the administration, within the press, on both sides in Congress, who really felt that it was America had to go ahead and try to develop the hydrogen bomb for the obvious reason, which is that they were very worried that, that Stalin and the Soviets would get there first. Now, in Chapter 7, you talk about many of the things that were going on during this time. Tell us about the story of being stranded in Missouri. Ah, I think you're talking here about the, the battleship Missouri. Yes. Now, this was, a, this was an episode that was really quite embarrassing, actually. I mean, it had its funny side, but it was a little bit embarrassing. This was early in 1950. Now, the only battleship the United States Navy had in service and afloat was the USS Missouri, which was a very large battleship, very powerful battleship, which had served in World War II. And it was stationed on, on the east coast of the United States uh, in Chesapeake Bay. And it went off on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a routine practice voyage uh, early in, in that year. And unfortunately, the, the captain, who wasn't very experienced with battleships, uh, he seems to have really been an aircraft carrier man, he, uh, he and his colleagues misread some of the buoys um, that were to mark the, the, the navigable channels in the sea, and they ran aground. Uh, they ran aground in a pretty spectacular fashion, and, and the, this huge battleship traveled about half a mile across the mud and got completely stuck fast. Now, this was very embarrassing. Uh, it was particularly embarrassing because, because it was a US called the USS Missouri. And of course, Missouri was Harry Truman's home state. And so comedians and, and, and people who wanted to, uh, to uh, make fun of the president yeah, compared it to kind of his, his fair deal policy program, which was kind of stranded on the shoals of Congress. And Truman wasn't really very happy about this. And, and, he, and he kind of kept his distance from this whole affair. And the Navy, uh, fortunately, the Navy, uh, by dint of, of a great deal of very hard work and, and by bringing in tug 
tugboats, divers, and explosive charges on, they were actually eventually able to to free the U.S. Missouri from from the mud. But for several weeks, it was it was a great topic of conversation in the United States. It was, uh, it, as I say, it had its funny side. Fortunately, the Navy kept its good home humor throughout. Uh, they could see that their reputation was at stake. They kept their good humor and they worked very methodically. And then they got it off the mud and they put the naval band, the U.S. Navy's most distinguished band of musicians, were stuck on the deck of the Missouri. And as they pulled it off the shoal, they played anchors away. So it, it, ended, it ended happily. But in the meantime, it, it, had, it had been another embarrassment to Harry Truman. And it had been, um, as I say, picked up by uh, many commentators to try and use as, as a way of really getting at the president. Well, the famous trial of Algier Hiss, he was found guilty. Tell us the story behind that. Algier Hiss, it's a very famous, very important episode. Algier Hiss was a lawyer. Uh, he was a friend of the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson. Uh, they know they knew each other very well. Uh, he, he'd had a very distinguished career as, as a he's, been a very good law student. He'd been at Harvard Law School. He had clerked for a justice of the uh, Supreme Court. And then he had worked in Washington uh, at the State Department during the 1930s. And then he had gone on to work as a diplomat during World War II. And he had actually been at the famous Yalta Conference of 1945 when Franklin Roosevelt and Churchill met with Stalin. Now, the trouble was that in 1948, a gentleman called Whitaker Chambers, who was a former communist, but then had, had left the Communist Party and become a journalist for Time magazine, Whitaker Chambers accused Alger Hiss or named Alger Hiss as someone who had received past to the Communists in America, to the Communist Party in America, confidential State Department documents. In other words, he was alleging that, in effect, Alger Hiss was an agent for Soviet communism. Now, Alger Hiss had denied this, and he had denied it on oath to a congressional committee, to a, to a grand jury. And he was also later investigated by a congressional committee. Now, because he lied on oath, or allegedly had lied on oath, he was put on trial for perjury in 1949, 1948-9. And there were, two, there were two trials, actually. The first trial ended inconclusively because the jury couldn't reach a verdict. The second trial ended early in 1950. And on January the 25th, having been convicted of perjury, January 25th, Alger Hiss was sentenced to five years in prison. And at that point, this became a huge cause celebre in the United States. Uh, the case had been going on for a long time, so the details weren't new. But the conviction and the sentencing became a huge cause celebre. And this was really the moment at which Senator Joseph McCarthy emerged and really went all out for his own um, attack on, on alleged communists uh, in the State Department. Now, a lot of people um, have forgotten about President Truman's commitment to civil rights. Can you tell us what did you find? It's just a very complicated area, this one, and it's problematic. Now, there's no question that from 1946-47 onwards, Harry Truman had become extremely concerned about what he saw as being the, the, the disastrous situation in terms of black civil rights. He felt that, that little progress had been made. Uh, he was a particularly appalled by uh, a case in 1946 of, a, of an army sergeant, a black army sergeant called Isaac Woodard, who had been subject to a brutal beating by police in, I think it was North Carolina. He was very concerned about this. And so he had appointed a commission on civil rights, which had reported in 1947, and which had recommended a whole series of reforms to try and end segregation and try and end discrimination against people of color. And this would have formed part of the backbone of, of Harry Truman's program after the 1948 election. 
The difficulty was that he ran into terrible trouble. Harrington ran into terrible trouble in getting this through Congress, getting anything like this through Congress, because the Democratic Party was so divided on the issue. So much of the Democratic Party's bedrock of strength was from Southern congressmen who were still determined to prevent, to, to protect the old order of things, who were committed to defending segregation. And they were most unhappy about any kind of civil rights legislation. So he ran into a series of problems. And in 1950, uh, this was particularly, uh, particularly clear. 1950, uh, various congressmen, particularly Adam Clayton Powell, black congressman from Harlem, tried to introduce legislation to end any form of discrimination in hiring practices by employers. Um, completely failed because of the use of the filibuster by Southerners in the Senate um, and because of delaying taxes in the House of Representatives. And this meant that effectively, Harry Truman's civil rights program basically was, was stuck. Now, he had done one very important thing, which was to issue an executive order desegregating the armed forces. That had been in 1948. But even there, there were problems because although he'd issued the executive order desegregating the armed services, the armed services themselves dragged their feet. The Air Force was, 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 was very prompt, but the Army and the Navy were not prompt. And so, in fact, it took some number of years until the Korean War began before this could finally be implemented. So Harry Truman had a very frustrating time with his civil rights program. My own view, however, that he might have been a bit more creative in the way he handled it. That if he couldn't get legislation through Congress, what he should have done was be prepared to use the Justice Department and other means at his disposal to try and act as an executive, to try and end the, the worst abuses that were suffered by people of color. In Chapter 8, you talk about another spy, and this spy basically was in uh, New Mexico. Tell us more about what happened. Uh, no, this was this was uh, Klaus Fuchs, I think you mean, the, 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 um, the, the, the atomic spy based in Britain. Yes. Yeah. Well, Klaus Fuchs was a German. Uh, he had been a, a, a socialist and also a communist in Germany in the 1930s. And he had left Germany as an exile, and he had gone to work in England, where he was, was a very prominent theoretical physicist. And he had been sent over by the British to America during World War II to work on the Manhattan Project that, that developed the atomic bomb. So he'd actually been at Los Alamos, which is where J. Robert Oppenheimer and his colleagues had their principal, um, principal base of operations. Now, unfortunately, Klaus Fuchs was also a communist spy. He had been recruited by the Russians uh, some years previously, and he was actively passing uh, material about the atomic bomb to, to the Soviet Union. Now, what happened was this. Um, the United States Army's intelligence uh, department had broken Soviet diplomatic codes. They had what was known as, this is what was known as the Venona Project. And the Venona Project, developed during World War II, was able to decipher all the radio traffic going backwards and forwards between the Soviet Union in Moscow and the Soviet embassies abroad. And in the course of decrypting these, these messages, which, whose codes had been broken, they picked up indications that there were indeed these active Soviet spies in the United States. And they were able to work on this material, work on these decrypts, and that, that information led them to the notion that there was a, one of the British uh, scientists in the United States was a Soviet spy. So they passed the material to the FBI. The FBI contacted the British. The British investigated, and they didn't find, yes, they, they found that Klaus Fuchs was an agent working for the Soviets. They interrogated him, uh, and he confessed. And he was put on trial in London. He appeared in court in London in February 1950. This was only a matter of less than 10 days after the conviction of Alger Hiss. Now, when it became known in the United States that a German physicist working for the British 
privy to the secrets of the Manhattan Project, had also been a Soviet spy. As you can imagine, this caused an enormous uproar in Congress, in the press. It was very worrisome indeed. Put the two together, the Fuchs case and the Hiss case, and you had the makings of a sensation. And that was the moment when Joe McCarthy stepped in, in Congress, and became the, the most famous um, anti-communist of the 20th century. Can you tell us about his willing speech and the Loyalty Review Board? Well, Joe McCarthy was actually a bit of a late comer to the issue of, of, of communism in the United States. Um, Anti-communism has been around for a very long time. And after World War II, there have been a number of, 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 of there have been a series of, um, after World War II, there have been a series of, of, of anti-communist purges, if you like, in, in one area after another. I mean, for example, there had been the famous campaign in Hollywood to try and remove uh, communist sympathizers from, 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 the, from the motion picture industry. There had also been the labor unions themselves had taken the steps to remove communists from among their members. There had been the, tri- the conspiracy trial in New York, which I mentioned earlier. All this had happened. Joe McCarthy hadn't really played very much part in all of this. He suddenly leapt into the into the picture in February 1950. Uh, now, he was very close to a newspaper, the Chicago Tribune. The most powerful newspapers in the United States at that time were the Chicago Tribune and the New York Daily News. They had the biggest circulations, and they were owned by a family called the McCormick family. And in effect, Joseph McCarthy formed a kind of alliance with the McCormick family and the Chicago Tribune and the New York Daily News. And McCarthy was helped by the journalist from the Chicago Tribune and the Daily News to write a speech which he delivered in Wheeling, West Virginia in February 1950, the week after the arrest of Klaus Fuchs. And that Wheeling speech caused something of a sensation. In that speech, he said that he he had a list of the names of more than 200 communists, Communist Party members who were actually working in the State Department in Washington. And he challenged Dean Ashton, the Secretary of State, to reveal the names. And that was really the start of the great McCarthy sensation, sort of the really McCarthy era. And it caused, as I say, it caused a great uproar. Um, and McCarthy did his best to keep the uproar going by continuing repeating new allegations in the weeks that followed, and also by, by some very dramatic uh, uh, tactics on the floor of the Senate. So that was the wheeling speech. Now, you brought in um, information about Margaret Chase Smith uh, from Maine. Tell us about how her famous speech uh, led to more of a balance. Well, Senator Margaret Chase Smith was the responsible for a thing called the Four Horsemen speech of, of, of June 1950. Now, Margaret Chase Smith was a Republican. Uh, she was one of only 10 women in, in Congress, and she was the only woman in the Senate. Uh, and she had been in the Senate for, for, in Congress for about 10 years by now, and she had developed a lot of expertise in certain areas. I mean, she was particularly interested in issues of national security and defense. She was particularly interested in issues of social security and pensions as well. And she knew McCarthy pretty well. She had served with McCarthy on a committee. The committee she had belonged to with McCarthy was the one investigating the 5% affair, which we, which we referred to earlier. So she knew him pretty well. But she was a bit worried. Uh, when McCarthy began to make his allegations about communists in the State Department, Margaret Chase Smith became uneasy because she felt uncomfortable. She felt that the evidence he was providing really just wasn't adequate. And she was a bit worried about his tactics, his, his demeanor, kind of aggression he displayed. She was really concerned about this. 
But she was also concerned about the Truman administration. Now, as I said, she, she could, took a close interest in matters of national security and defense, and she was worried about the way that the Truman administration had reduced the defense budget. Now, Harry Truman always had this problem uh, in his second term in office uh, after 1948, which was that he had a, a budget deficit. He had a budget deficit of $5 billion. And the problem was that he had promised that he would balance the budget. So he, he had to get the budget balanced before the next presidential election in 1952, and he had trouble with this. And if he was going to balance the budget, he really had no choice but to reduce defense expenditure. And this was the thing which was worrying Margaret Chase Smith. She was also worried by the by the way that there were kind of feuds going on within the Truman administration. She was concerned about their um, um, the way that they had responded to to, whole, to a number of issues. But she was mainly concerned really about this issue about confusion about defense policy. And she was concerned about Harry Truman. So what she did was she gave this dramatic speech on the floor of the Senate in, in June 1950. Now, she was not allowed under the rules of the Senate, to criticize Joe McCarthy by name. She couldn't do that. That was against the procedural rules of the Senate at the time. She couldn't do that. So what she gave was this speech uh, called the Four Horsemen speech. And what she said was that she did not want the Republican Party to come to power on the back of what she called the Four Horsemen, the Four Horsemen of Fear, Ignorance, Bigotry, and Smear. Now, she didn't name Joe McCarthy, but everybody knew what she meant. She meant she was accusing Joe McCarthy in his anti-communist crusade in, in, in the Senate of dwelling, of, of whipping up fear, ignorance, bigotry, and smear. Now, at the same time, over, she was also very critical of, of Harry Truman, the Truman administration. And this is the thing that's forgotten. People remember the four horsemen. They don't remember uh, or, they, or they don't look at the fact that she also had some pretty harsh words about Harry Truman. I mean, she said that Harry Truman was uh, petty, pitiful, bitter, uh, ineffective and complacent. So she wasn't really in Harry Truman either. But her speech caused a, a great deal of interest at the time. And it's, it's always been remembered, and quite rightly so, that she was the first person who really had the courage to stand up um, and oppose Joe McCarthy on the floor of the Senate. What's not, not so much remembered is the fact that she also criticized the Truman administration too. She was really one of nature's, she was one of life centrists. She was very much a centrist. She was very much a consensus politician. She wanted to restore harmony within the nation. And that was really what she was trying to do with the Four Horsemen speech. And also, of course, she wanted to have a role for women. Uh, she used to describe herself as being America's senator for women because she was the only one there. And she was campaigning on women's issues too. And so I think she's a character who really needs to be remembered rather more than she is. Yes. Chapter 12, The Road Back to America, Population Changing Again. Why didn't um, Truman visit California? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Truman loved traveling across the country giving speeches. He loved doing that. Uh, he had done it to enormous great effect in, in 1948 during the presidential election campaign um, when he had done these great speech speaking tours on a railroad train. The railroad train would pull up in, in a railway station. He would speak from the rear of the train. He would give, go to rallies. He, he loved public speaking to Americans in the open air as frequently as possible. And what he did in May 1950 was he decided to do this again. He decided to have a great big tour across the country to go to the Pacific Northwest and um, specifically the Grand Coulee Dam. The Grand Coulee Dam was at that time the biggest structure ever made by human beings on the face of the earth, built by Franklin Roosevelt to generate electric power in the Pacific Northwest. Played an important role in the development of the atom bomb because it, it supplied the power that, 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 that drove some of the atomic reactors that enriched uranium for the atom bomb. And he went to, to Grand Coulee Dam to open the thing and, to get, and again to give a whole lot of speeches. And his idea was to have this great 
trip across the country, stopping in various locations in, in the Midwest and then in, in the Northwest and then you know, Montana on the way home, give speeches. But curiously enough, he didn't go to California. If he'd just gone 300 miles further on, he would have been in California. He didn't go to California. He kept away from California. And I think I see this as quite a revealing uh, flaw in Harry Truman that he did not recognize the fact that the country was changing, that California was really becoming kind of the political, um, the, the most important political back, battleground in the United States, as it would be in the 1950s and the 1960s. And he, he didn't see that. Um, and that may have cost him dearly because, you see, when the midterm elections came along in 1950, what happened? Well, Richard Nixon was elected senator from California. And my view is that, that Truman has paid more attention to California and taken more of an interest in California politics. And if he had, uh, he had, he had campaigned himself in California, then who knows, he might have been able to prevent Richard Nixon from taking the first step on the road to the White House. Now, after the reader finishes your book, what message would you like the reader to leave with? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I, there's a tragic quality to this book because the book ends with the with the outbreak of the Korean War on June the 25th, 1950. Now, the Korean War was enormously costly in terms of human life. I mean, it's it's hard to say exactly how many people died during the Korean War, but but if, one problem is that we we simply can't calculate the casualties of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. They were involved in the war. We don't really know how many losses they suffered. There's very large numbers. But we're talking possibly maybe three to four million deaths as a result of the Korean War. So it's a it was a devastating conflict, and it had the effect of setting the Cold War in stone. Um, from that moment forth, the Cold War was on, and it was going to last until the uh, the 19, mid 1980s. So the tragedy is that that war wasn't averted. And my view is that the war could have been averted, that it, that it was a war which, which, if you like, America kind of stumbled into. And I think that's a sort of tragic issue. About, but there's a sense of tragedy about that. On the other hand, there are other issues uh, here. There are other, some very positive things going on in 1949 1950. One of the things that was, was very clear by the end of that year was just how enormously resilient the United States economy was. Um, the United States economy in 1950 uh, was, was really reaping the benefits of a huge amount of, of, of investment and a huge amount of innovation that had taken place since the early 1930s, since the time of the Great Depression. Um, America had invested in science and technology. High school education had improved dramatically since World War I. Universities had expanded. There was a great deal of human resources had been built up corporations were building. The, the, the great fundamental strength of the American economy can really be seen visible you know, in 1950 as they came out of the recession. And you can really see the, the foundations being laid at this stage for another 20 years or so of prosperity. But even that's tragic in a way, you know, because my view is that, that America at the time tended to underestimate its own resources. They didn't realize just how strong they were and just what resources they have. And there were a whole series of issues in the country, issues of inequality, social divisions, the whole issue of civil rights, which America could have sold at that time. It had the resources to do it, but they didn't. And I think that's a sort of a, a sad, um, a, a rather, rather something rather, rather sad. But also, I think um, one thing I'd like to people to carry away from, from this book is a sense, as you referred to earlier, of just how interconnected events were at home and abroad. Uh, what I do in the book is um, the bulk of the narrative of the book concerns events in America, political, social, economic events in America. But but after each chapter, I have a section which also deals with, with what was occurring um, in, in Europe or in Asia, uh, India at the time. I think it's very important to get that sense of, of people reacting in each country and in each location to what was going on in, in, in other locations, um, to see this kind of interaction which is occurring across borders. 
Because this was also a year which was very interesting for something else, which is the origins of the European Union. Uh, 1950 was the year which saw the, something called the Schuman Plan, which was the distant ancestor of what became the common market and the European Union um, uh, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and which, of course, is still with us today. And that actually was created in, in precisely this period um, in, um, in the middle of 19, the, the Schuman Plan came about uh, in May 1950. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Ah, well, that's a good question. I, I'm a bit superstitious about talking about future projects because I don't like talking things unless I'm pretty certain that they're kind of on the way, if you like, um, and that I know they're feasible. But I can tell you, um, I, this book, as I was saying, deals with the period from September 1949 to June 1950. And I try to sort of cover that um, that that period in, in vivid detail and, and to give a very clear narrative as to what was occurring and to sort of capture all the, the bigger, wider themes of the period. What I'm planning to do is doing something similar, only uh, it'll start a little bit later. It'll be from 1954 to 1955, uh, which again was another very tumultuous period. This is when President Eisenhower was in the White House and President Eisenhower had a very different style. Uh, his style of government, the way he operated, was very, very different to Harry Truman's. And he had different ideas too. He was to some extent carrying on Truman's legacy, but he also had um, a, a different style of his own and he, he came up with different results. Um, but also that was a period, 1954 or 55, which, which was very important in, in the rest of the world. Um, this was the year, for example, when Sir Winston Churchill in the United Kingdom reached the end of his great long political year, the career. Uh, he had been in government on and off for, for nearly for more than 50 years. 1955, he finally reached the end of his career, and that's kind of a significant turning point moment. And 1954 was also the year that saw the French defeat of the French in Vietnam, Battle of Dien Bien Phu. It was also a critical year in the development of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It was a critical year um, in the in the in, in issues between the United States and China. So I'm going to do. So one of my plans is to do something very similar to In the Shadow of Fear, but it'll cover this later period, 1954 and 1955. Well, we'll be looking forward to that new book. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you very much, Gendry. Thank you. And again, we've been talking with Nick Bunker, the author of In the Shadow of Fear, America and the World in 1950. Thank you. Thank you, Gendry.